Hello, I'm Lauren Foster. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast, the series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. For the next few weeks, we're featuring episodes focused on equity investing. And in today's episode, we talk about what could trigger the next global recession. My guest is Nouriel Rabini, who's not known for his optimism. Dr. Rabini, or Dr. Doom, as he's sometimes known, is a professor of economics at NYU. We talk about four games of chicken that could crash the global economy and markets, the US presidential elections in 2020, and why he thinks crypto is a scam, and Bitcoin, the most overhyped technology ever. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Nouriel Rubini, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, my pleasure. So we're going to talk about a, a lot of problems today, but before we take the plunge on the problems, what is something uh, you're optimistic about in the world today? Um, well, the positive are that um, in spite of a bunch of tail risk, uh, we're only in an economic slowdown and probably the risk of an outright recession that was a war in the market over the summer has been reduced. Some of the global tail risks are less than today. So, so the bad news is that we're in a slowdown. The good news is maybe we'll avoid the recession and maybe that's a cause for optimism. Certainly it is in the markets. Okay, well, that's a little bit of a cause for optimism over there. So you've written an article fairly recently where you outlaid four games of chicken uh, that you say could crash the global economy and the markets. And I'd like to take each of those in turn. So let's start with the perhaps the most important one, the contest between the US and China over trade and technology. So walk us through that game of chicken and its implications. Well, the problem is that uh, unfortunately, uh, there's a beginning of a trade currency technology and even Cold War between uh, US and China. Uh, I think that the two countries are uh, on a collision course and eventually, I think the technological war is going to imply a decoupling between US and China, a process of deglobalization, of balkanization, and fragmentation of the global economy. Uh, there are just uh, restrictions, not just in trading goods, tariffs, but also capital mobility. Uh, investment by China and US has fallen by over 80% during the last year. There will be restrictions to mobility even over searches as students. Uh, uh, U.S. has a paranoia that every Chinese coming to the U.S. might be a spy. And now, now restriction, of course, to technology, the fight about uh, who's going to control the industries of the future, 5G, Huawei, AI, robotic automation, and data and information and technology are related to each other. So uh, we may be in a process of uh, deglobalization. Of course, in the short run, the U.S. and China may achieve a truce because uh, both sides, uh, US because Trump wants to get reelected, China because it needs time to rely less on US technology, uh, they need the truce and therefore maybe the only good news is that the escalation in the next 12 months is not going to occur. But I would say over the medium term, uh, trade and tech and even a cold war between US and China, strategic competition between these two powers is probably inevitable and that's a significant risk for the global economy. And your second scenario, the brewing dispute between US and Iran? Um, on, on that one, I would say that uh, the concern is that if, if that dispute were to end up into a hot war, as opposed to the current tension, a hot war might lead to a, a block of the Strait of Hormuz where a third of global oil is passing through. 
and there have been at least three episodes in the past uh, 40 years. One was the Yom Kippur War between uh, Israel and the Arab states in 1973. It led to an oil embargo and a recession in 1974-75. 1979, uh, Iranian Revolution, other oil shock that's been the U.S. and the global economy recession in 1882. And even the recession, U.S. and global of 1991, was driven in part by the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait that led to a spike in oil prices. So you have had three global recessions that were triggered by a geopolitical shock in the Middle East that led to a shock to the supply of oil and oil prices. So, so the bad news is that if uh, this tension between U.S. and Iran were to escalate, this game of chicken lead to a collision, then you'll have a significant shock to the supply of oil, oil prices rise, and that will be a negative for the U.S. and the global economy. Uh, maybe the positive news on that prospect today is that both sides realize that the military confrontation is going to be damaging. Uh, most of the infrastructure of Iran will be destroyed. That's the bad news for them. But even Trump having gasoline prices spiking at 5 or $6 a gallon is going to uh, tip consumption into negative territory. It's going to cause a recession and it's going to weaken the chances of Trump getting reelected. So in spite of a number of... Uh, Iranian provocation, attacks against tankers, the downing of a drone, or the attack recently on the Saudi oil facility. The U.S. has so far shown restraint because they realize even a surgical attack against Iran can lead to a full-scale war, and the U.S. doesn't want a full-scale war that leads to an oil shock. So it's a risk because in the next 12 months, things can deteriorate, but probably both sides uh, for now uh, don't want to escalate in a full-scale war, but that's a tail risk for the global economy. Okay. We also have the escalating brinkmanship between uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the EU over Brexit and uh, Argentina, which just elected the Peronist Alberto Fernandez as president. So let's start with Argentina. Do you think the government is on a collision course with the IMF? Well, so far the new president has been uh, accusing the former President Macri to be in codes with the IMF to try to get re-elected. Uh, these 50 billion that the IMF has lent to Argentina have not helped uh, the economic condition of Argentina. They got worse. And therefore, there's a bit of a blame game of accusing the former president and the IMF uh, of having caused the economic and financial crisis. But the markets are already worried about uh, this new government becoming more populist. Uh, going to radical fiscal policy and monetary policy are going to cause more inflation and more debt. And uh, there's also a risk that uh, they're going to default on the foreign debt or try to restructure it under very coercive terms. And uh, of course, uh, the, the burden of the borrowing from the IMF is also, you know, another, another constraint for what the country is going to do. Uh, those are the bad news. Uh, the positive is that, you know, if I owe you a billion is my problem, if I owe you 50 billion is your problem. That's why the IMF right now cannot have a full confrontation with Argentina with my default even on the debt to the IMF. But then on the IMF side, Argentina needs the IMF because given their financing needs, they actually have to borrow even more. And since they don't have access to international capital markets, they have to borrow from the IMF. So maybe there is some room of compromise if both sides realize that they need each other. But right now they are on a potential collision course. And they'll be damaging not just to Argentina, but also if there was a disorderly default in Argentina, like the one occurred in 2001, I think the 
overall emerging market asset class uh, will be damaged as well through transmission of uh, widening of spreads to, to other countries as well. So speaking of collision courses, the UK has its snap elections on December 12th. How do you see that playing out? Um, well, we don't know what will be the results of those elections, but I would say that, again, uh, one risk over the summer was that there will be a hard Brexit. And uh, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, was talking and saying, unless I get a good deal, I'm willing to go for our Brexit, even if our Brexit would have been severely damaging the UK leading to a recession. He realized that that was a risk and therefore he found a compromise. Uh, even if there is intellectual noise, I would say that the probability of a hard Brexit now has been significantly reduced because either the Tories win that election, in which case a new parliament, there'll be a majority for voting the current uh, new agreement between the UK and the EU, a version of a soft Brexit, or if Labour, a coalition of Labour and Lib Dem were to win those elections, uh, those parties are either in favour of uh, a second referendum or a soft Brexit or even to uh, essentially reverse the Brexit decision if there is a second referendum with a clear vote for Remain. So in spite of the electoral uncertainty, I think the good news compared to the summer is that the probability of the worst outcome would have been bad for the UK and very bad for Europe too of a hard Brexit. That probability has been taken low and possibly off the table. So regardless of the noise that is still about the results of those elections, uh, the risk of a hard Brexit will be really damaging, has been reduced, and that's a yes, positive. That's a good positive. So let's shift a bit now to the US. Uh, there's been lots of news uh, on the impeachment process. Uh, what are your views on the implications uh, for US foreign policy, for the 2020 presidential elections? Um, who's likely to benefit most from what's going on? Well, uh, it's uh, likely that uh, the Democrats might vote for impeachment uh, in the House, and that requires only a simple majority. But uh, in the Senate, for having a conviction, you need a two-thirds majority. And realistically, having 20-plus uh, uh, Republican senators voting for convicting the president is unlikely. Maybe two or three or four of them might do so, but not more than that. So. The result of that noise is going to be that uh, most likely is going to be impeach the House, but not uh, uh, convict in the Senate. Therefore, he's going to remain president, and therefore there'll be election where he runs again. And, uh, and then the question, I think the bigger uncertainty is instead on the results of the U.S. presidential election. Of course, uh, Trump could win again, or a Democrat could win, and the Democrat who could win could be a centrist uh, like Biden or somebody more progressive like uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, some people in the market are starting to worry about uh, a Warren presidency since uh, many of her policies are quite progressive. I would make the caveat that, first of all, she needs to get elected. Two, even if she's elected, uh, it's not obvious that the Democrats are gonna have a majority in the Senate. And if they don't have a majority in the Senate, it's gonna be hard to pass a variety of legislation on corporate taxes being raised or wealth taxes or changes in other economic policy like healthcare. Even if the uh, Democrats were to regain the Senate, win the House, the Senate, and the White House, uh, probably the median senator in the United States is slightly more centrist than Elizabeth Warren. Therefore, some of her more radical policies are not gonna have sufficient votes to pass. 
say, suppose that uh, she wanted truly to have uh, uh, Medicare for all, I don't think there is a majority in the Senate for that. So there may be changes of making uh, healthcare more available to more people, negotiating uh, drug prices to reduce the price of those things, but that will be short of having a single payer Medicare for all system, uh, for example. Or, uh, you know, there may be some increase in taxation uh, of the corporate sector, there'll be some increase in corporate taxes but most likely we're not gonna go back to the 35% uh, corporate tax rate that we had before the current was reduced towards 20. I go to the mid or high 20s. So there'll be some increases. So, so I would say that uh, some of the more radical policies that might worry the markets and investors, even if she's elected, may not be enacted. So there'll be a shift towards slightly more progressive economic policies, but constrained by the fact that the even if the Democrats control the Senate, the median senator is slightly more centrist. Okay. If Trump loses the election, does that change your outlook about our relationships with China? Um, not as much in the sense that uh, now the entire foreign policy establishment in the United States, even mainstream people uh, like mainstream Democrats and Republicans have become more hawkish on China. They believe that China has been free riding on the global trade rules. There have been unfair trade practices that China has become under President Xi Jinping more authoritarian rather than not. Uh, there's a broader consensus that uh, China and its plans to dominate AI or the 10 industries of the future may be a potential security and economic threat to the United States. So, so even uh, more mainstream uh, Republican and Democrats have become uh, more hawkish. And if you're looking about the trade policies of, say, Elizabeth Warren, but even of Biden, uh, they're not totally dissimilar uh, from those of uh, Donald Trump. They want to play tough on China and to try to push back against some of those unfair trade practices. There may be a more constructive engagement in China for the medium uh, long term, but I would say the risk of a technology war or a Cold War between US and China is still meaningful, even if a Democrat were to be elected. I think you have, a, you have essentially a conflict that is not dependent on whether you have Xi Jinping and Trump, but has to do with the fact that a rising, a rising China is perceived rightly or wrong as being a, a threat by the United States over the medium long term. Okay. What is your outlook for reserve currencies? And do you think the US dollar will remain the most attractive reserve currency in the longer term? Well, the dollar is still used uh, as a major reserve currency, um, and many people are not happy with that, especially as the U.S. is using uh, economic sanctions to bully both allies and others. Uh, the trouble is, uh, what's the alternative in the short term to the U.S. dollar? Uh, the euro, not because the eurozone has its own problems, and some people even worry about the risk of a breakup of the eurozone if things really go wrong. Uh, it's not going to be the British pound, it's not going to be the Japanese yen. And uh, the Chinese might have hoped that the RMB becomes a major reserve currency, but in the last few years they imposed the capital controls on inflows and outflows that were pressures on China, and therefore internationalizing the role of the RMB in a world in which there are still significant capital controls in China and the, the currency is managed heavily is also, is also unlikely. Uh, on the other side, the, the U.S. is increasingly using uh, 
essentially economic sanction as a mean of foreign policy sanctions against Iran, against Russia, against China, against North Korea. And then uh, they also force allies like Europeans to then uh, to go for say, secondary sanctions. So say if the Europeans don't join those sanctions, then we're going to restrict your ability to borrow from the dollar banking financial system. So there is a bit of a frustration uh, and people have been thinking, are there alternatives to bypass the US dollar, uh, alternative to SWIFT, alternative means of payment, maybe payment systems that are digital, like the one that China is developing. You know, if Alipay or WeChat, they were to becoming global payment systems, you may be able to bypass the US dollar. But I think those changes uh, will occur only slowly. So for the time being, uh, most people are unhappy with the dominance of the US dollar, it's still a major reserve currency, but there is not um, a clear alternative to the US dollar. So any changes are going to occur only very gradually. Okay, so we'll wrap up with a, a final question on uh, Bitcoin and crypto. And you have very strong views on both of those. In fact, you wrote a headline that was articled uh, or headlined the great crypto heist. And last October, you testified that crypto is the mother or father of all scams and bubbles, and blockchain is the most overhyped technology ever. I assume you still feel the same way today? Yeah, I uh, feel the same way today for several reasons. Uh, reason number one is that calling them cryptocurrency as a misnomer. Any uh, expert on monetary theory knows that for something to be money or a currency has to be a unit of account, has to be the single numerator for pricing the relative price of all goods and services, has to be a scalable uh, means of payment, and has to be a stable store of value. Now, uh, Bitcoin, let alone other of those pseudo cryptocurrency, is not a unit of account. Nobody is paying anything uh, or actually pricing anything in, uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, you cannot have thousands of uh, tokens because otherwise you go back to barter. You cannot even compare the relative price of different goods if you don't have a single numerator. So having thousands of tokens or cryptocurrencies just creates uh, economic chaos. Three is not a scalable means of payment. You can do only five transactions per second with Bitcoin. With the Visa network, you can do 25,000 transactions per second. And it's not a stable store of value because, you know, the price can go up or down 10, 20 percent in a day. So if you're a merchant and you accept Bitcoin, your entire profit margin overnight can be wiped out because the price has fallen 10 or 20 percent. So it's not a stable store of value. That's why there was a bubble in 2017. That bubble went bust. Uh, even Bitcoin is still 60 percent below the peak. The other top 10 currencies, cryptocurrencies, are 80 percent down from the peak and 99% uh, of the other pseudo-cryptocurrency uh, have lost pretty much uh, almost 100% of their value. So, so I think that um, nobody really who understands monetary theory believes that this is going to be meaningful currencies or digital payment system. Uh, there are alternatives that are in the fintech that are becoming sophisticated payment system, but they're based on AI, big data, and IoT, you know, Alipay and WeChat Pay in China, M-Pesa in Kenya and Africa, UPI systems in uh, India, Venmo, PayPal, and other digital payment systems uh, in, uh, in the United States. And I think eventually even central banks might issue their own digital currencies, and those are going to crowd out uh, not just crypto, but even 
other private, private uh, digital payment systems. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Professor Rubini. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.